right. Are you ready for the question? You are? Okay. So some of you who are brand new, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but you're about to find out. Because we love the Bible, and I want to ask you today, how many of you are ready to study God's Word today? All right, I hope you brought a Bible with you. If you did not and you have a smart device, go ahead and grab your phone, and uh, you can type the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at in just a minute into your browser, or we've been talking about some of the Bible apps that you can download as well uh, on whatever device you use. This series that we're in is called Bible Basics, and for the last two Sundays prior to this, we have been looking at the basic tools of Bible study. And in the first week, we talked about tools that we can use online and, uh, and old-fashioned uh, book copy versions. We've referred to uh, resources like Blue Letter Bible and uh, net.bible.org and a lot of different resources that we can use that can help us gain insight into the context of the scripture, the language, the, the Hebrew and the Greek of the scripture when we begin to use those tools like a concordance. And if you don't know what that word means, then you need to go back and watch the message online on our website from two weeks ago. Then last Sunday, we looked at the reliability of the scriptures, how it has been handed on to us over these thousands of years, and how we got the copies of the Word of God that we have today in our hands, and how those were translated into English and French or whatever language you read your Bible in, knowing that if you did not bring a Bible in Hebrew or Greek, then you are not likely reading it in its original language. Then that all led to this Saturday. Yesterday morning, we spent three hours right here in this room doing deep study in the Psalms with Dr. Steve Lennox. And it was an amazing time. We had about 150 people here to spend half of their day going into deep study of the Word of God. And we look forward to continuing that series and growing the numbers of that event as we take the Word of God seriously in our lives. Well, we have a special guest back with us this morning who is going to be diving into one of those specific psalms and putting those tools that we have been learning about into action and helping us do some deep study in Psalm 77. And he is a great friend and a mentor. I mentioned to you last week he was a Bible professor uh, that has influenced my life greatly and that I can say beyond the shadow of any doubt that he has had a greater impact on how I study the Bible than any other human being in my life. I hope he considers that to be a good thing. And uh, so I am incredibly honored to introduce to you today the president of Kingswood University and our good friend here at Moncton Wesleyan, Dr. Steve Lennox. Thank you. It is great to be back with you. I love this church. I love the energy that I sense and your passion for God and your, you really believe he is here, don't you? Yeah, I can tell. And he is. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 77. And while you're turning, I'll just give you a bit of a background. Some of you don't know about Kingswood University. This is uh, Bethany Bible College. We were that for many years, changed our name a few years ago. We took Bible out of our name, but kept Bible in the heart of what we do. 
We exist to provide uh, an, an educational experience, the very highest caliber academic education, but because we are a Bible college, we also devote a considerable amount of attention to developing ministry skills in our students. And so for many of the students, they barely get a chance to unpack their suitcases in their first year, and they're already out doing ministry at Harvest House or one of the other great uh, service agencies doing ministry in Dorchester Prison and, and throughout the province and beyond. But we believe that what makes Kingswood University unique is not just its academic excellence and practical ministry experience, but our conviction that all of that must be done in the context of intentional spiritual formation. And so if we just educate a person from the shoulders up, even if we teach them the Bible and it's just from the shoulders up, all we've done is, is make Pharisees. And if we just educate students to know how to do ministry, but they don't know why or for whom, then all we've done is educate hypocrites. But we believe that when you bring together academic excellence and practical ministry experience with intentional spiritual formation, our goal is to see the Spirit of God shape our students to look like Christ then we have a prepared a person to do ministry. And by ministry, I, I mean vocational ministry, pastoral ministry, but youth ministry, missions, Christian school education. But our definition of ministry is broad enough to include people who will go out and do all kinds of things. Doesn't matter who's signing their paycheck, their heart is to do this for God. And they do it as ministry. Those are the kind of students, that's the core of what we do at Kingswood University. If, you, if you'd like more information, if you think you may be interested in exploring an education or you know someone who might, we have a table in the back. My wife and I will be out there after the service. We'd love to talk with you. We also have a brochure for our upcoming vision tour to the Magdalen Islands. I know for some of you that's on your bucket list. And this is your opportunity to enjoy the Magdalen Islands this September 16 to 24. Uh, it'll be a, a beautiful time. You know that area is beautiful and includes Prince Edward Island as well. And it's a time of spiritual refreshment. I'll share devotions every day. We read scripture together. We sing together. So it's a wonderful time. So take one of those brochures. All right. I've given you plenty of time to get to Psalm 77. Are you there? Yeah. Well, one of the things, there's lots of things that I enjoy about being at Kingswood. Those students are amazing. One of the most enjoyable parts of being there, though, is watching them develop in the faith, watching them take ownership for spiritual leadership. Over and over again, I will hear them initiate activities related to prayer. Going on right now in anticipation of our missions conference this week, there's a 24-hour season of prayer, and it's initiated and led by students. Prayer has become such an integral part of who we are, student-led prayer at Kingswood University. I believe that's why God is honoring what's happening there. But as I was listening to the students talk about prayer and I was thinking about this, my mind went back to, to an episode about 30 years ago. When my wife and I lived in Pennsylvania. We have a daughter. She has significant health challenges and has from birth. And so we spent a lot of time with pediatricians in those days. We had a team of pediatricians and they were great, but there was one that was my particular favorite. He had, he had great medical skills, but he also had great bedside manner. And, and on one of those occasions when we were spending lots of time together, knowing that I was a pastor at the time, he leaned over and said to me, you know, Steve, I was studying to be a pastor too. I said, what happened? 
And these are almost his exact words. He said, I was praying one day while I was in seminary, and I realized I was just talking to thin air. And the upshot of that realization was he decided he couldn't be a pastor, and so he'd have to do something else in service to his community, and so he became a medical doctor. I don't remember what I said to him at that moment. I think I said something like, well, Doc, what you're going to do for people can be ministry too. It doesn't have to be from a pulpit. You can serve in lots of ways. I don't, know, I don't remember what I said to him at that moment. But I think if I had that conversation now, here's what I would say. Doc, what you're experiencing there in prayer, just talking to the ceiling, that's not really prayer. The prayer that we meet in the Bible is not like that at all. The prayer that we meet in the Bible is, is, is alive. It's powerful. It's a connection to God. What you're experiencing in that moment is not really prayer, Doc. Try the real thing. I take him to Psalm 77. And we'd look at this example of prayer that the psalmist provides for us, and we'd realize that the kinds of things that the psalmist understood about prayer make prayer to be the kind of thing you wouldn't give up for anything. Take a look with me at these verses. Psalm 77, the psalmist writes, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused, and my spirit inquired, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Father, open our eyes. Gracious Spirit, open our ears and teach us. Show us the truth of your word and help us to know how to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When I think about this prayer of the psalmist and I ask what it was that allowed this prayer to be so 
so vibrant, so powerful. One of the things I notice is how rich the theology is in the psalm. This, this psalmist clearly understood the character of God, and it was from this wellspring that the, the prayer of the psalmist flows. He understands God so well, he knows who he's talking to. And because of what he knows about who he's talking to, he prays with an energy. Do you notice what he says about God? He talks about God's power. He refers to the right hand of the Most High. People in those days, like people today, were generally right-handed, so that's his dominant hand. It's as if the psalmist is saying, you give your greatest strength on our behalf. Take a look at verse 14. Pastor Mark read it for us a few minutes ago, and I just read it for you as well. It refers to the miraculous power of God, but translated more literally, that phrase reads, God doing miracles. It's almost like a title rather than a description. So if God had a business card underneath his name, God, it would say God doing miracles. That's his occupation. The psalmist refers in this passage to the deeds of the Lord. I'm in verse 11. The deeds of the Lord. Miracles of long ago. Kind of a general statement there, but you get the sense as you listen to this psalm that the psalmist has some specific set of miracles in mind, don't you? It isn't just miracles in general that he's thinking about. It's some specific event where God demonstrates his miraculous power. And if you look at verses 15 through 19, you'll see what that event is. Take a look at it. It's the Exodus. That moment when God delivers by his power, delivers his people from the hand of the Egyptian pharaoh. This miraculous power is demonstrated. It's focused at that moment. This God doing miracles is at his greatest power right then. As he delivers the people, as he parts the Red Sea, as he defeats the Egyptian army, this great power. Now, I'm going to make an obvious statement here. It's going to be one of several. But I imagine that if we know that we are talking to a God who has unlimited power, it's going to change the way we pray. Does that make sense? Would you agree that's true? If we know that God has the power to do what we ask him to do, we're going to be more inclined to ask him to do it. But that's not enough. Think of the most powerful person that you know. When's the last time you asked that person to do something for you? You probably haven't. And the reason you haven't is not for a lack of power on their part. It's for a lack of relationship with that person. See, in order for you to have a confidence to ask God to unleash his power on your behalf, there also has to be a corresponding recognition that this God wants to be in relationship with you, that this God loves you. So it isn't just his power that motivates our prayer. It's a combination that we understand both his power and his love. And the psalmist understands this. He speaks there. In verse 8, about God's unfailing love. He understands that the reason that God came to the Israelites in Egypt and delivered them was because he was already in a relationship with them. They didn't become his people after he delivered them from Egypt. He delivered them from Egypt because they were his people. 
He was with his people as he led them out. That's what this psalm says. But, it's, but the way it says it is really compelling. Listen, it describes, look at verse 20. It describes God and his relationship to the Israelites using this metaphor. Do you see what it is? It's a shepherd to his sheep. Now think with me about that metaphor. Sheep are incredibly dumb. Sheep are incredibly vulnerable. Their only defense mechanism is their speed, and they're not that fast. Sheep are perhaps the most vulnerable animals on the planet. Their only hope of surviving is if they have a shepherd who's willing to partner with them, to lead them to the places, to protect them when they are attacked. But who in his right mind is going to expose themselves to the elements and subject themselves to some of the stupidest creatures on the face of the earth? Only a shepherd will do that. Do you see why this is the perfect description of our relationship with God? We are completely dependent on him. And yet he, because he loves us, has chosen to link himself with us. Now, let me ask again. If you know God as a God who has limitless power and who loves us enough to link himself to us, isn't that going to change the way we pray? But let me introduce another wrinkle here. The psalmist is writing, we're not sure exactly when, but it's at least several hundred years after the exodus has occurred. Here's a question. How does the psalmist know that the God who delivered the Israelites from Egypt and showed his love for the Israelites while they were in Egypt still has the power and love today? Isn't that a reasonable question? Sure, God did that then. Sure, God had that love then. Does God still have that love today for the psalmist? And the psalmist would be quick to answer, absolutely. Listen, the years of the right hand of the Most High. You unpack that phrase, and here's what you get. That the Most High, with his right hand, has committed himself to his people, but the reference to the years of the right hand of the Most High refers to God's eternal nature. God doesn't change. And if God had the power to deliver his people from Egypt hundreds of years earlier, and if God had the love that drove him to hear their cry and rescue them, then God still has the same power and love in the days of the psalmist. And not just in the days of the psalmist, but in the 21st century at Moncton Wesleyan Church. There's only two options, my friend. Either God remains God throughout eternity, all-powerful, all-loving, or else he is not God. Not only do we have a God who was and is and always will be omnipotent, not only do we have a God who was and is and always will be all-loving, we have a God who will always be those things for us in our circumstances. Now, don't you think that'll change the way we pray? Yeah. 
The psalmist can pray with this vivacity because he understands the one to whom he prays. And he understands that this is the kind of God who will listen and respond and always can be counted upon. There's something else I notice about the psalmist's understanding of God, though, and that is that he understands that God is king and he is not. He speaks of God throughout this psalm as if God is sovereign. Even when he doesn't understand what God is doing, he still knows that God is king and he is only a subject of that king. Now, why do I mention that? Because I think this is a crucial element in prayer. We need to understand that prayer is an incredible privilege. It's tantamount to the, to the monarch, the to Queen Elizabeth opening Buckingham Palace and allowing us into her presence to make a request of her, and even greater than that. I'm not sure that that's the way we look at prayer. I think we look at prayer like the little kid praying for a bicycle. I think we look at prayer as if it's making a demand of God. I think... If we're really honest, sometimes we think of prayer the same way I thought of the steward on the cruise that Eileen and I just went on. Or the waiter. You, you like cruising? I love cruising. For one week, people treat me the way I finally deserve. <laughs> I can't get my wife to take the napkin off our table and put it on my lap once we get back. I don't know what's going on there. I love cruising. Cruising, you go in, your bed's already made up. They make that cute little towel animal. Anything you ask them, they'll do for you. You can get three appetizers and four entrees and six desserts. It doesn't matter. The ship is your oyster for that week. And that's all right for a cruise, but that's not the way prayer works. And yet I wonder if sometimes that's not what we're thinking. We're like the kid. Prays for the bicycle, doesn't get the bicycle, gives up on prayer. Which is even worse than the kid who prays for the bicycle, doesn't get the bicycle, steals a bicycle, and prays for forgiveness. <laughs> and I wonder if sometimes the problem that we have with prayer is not a problem with God, but a problem of our understanding of what prayer is meant to do. Prayer is an incredible privilege that God gives to us. It is not a demand. It is not an Amazon wish list. Prayer is a privilege that we come into God's presence. And when we come, we recognize, listen, he is king and we are not. And ultimately, the decision as to what we receive in response to our prayer is always left in his hands. But that's not all. Not only does the psalmist recognize that this God has absolute power and absolute love and always will, can always be counted on, not only does the psalmist understand that God is king and he is the subject, and this is a tremendous privilege, the psalmist understands that God, by his grace, has invited the psalmist into his presence and given the psalmist the opportunity to ask for whatever he wants to ask for. The Old Testament believer had what I call a covenant confidence. They knew that God had invited them into his presence, and you can see that in the psalm. God had invited them into his 
presence. And they had a relationship with him. The writer of Hebrews puts it a little differently. He says, let us come boldly to the what? Throne of grace. There it is, my friends. Throne. We're not on the throne. He is on the throne. He is the king, but he has invited us to come into his presence, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, not because of what we could contribute to him, but because of his grace. It is a throne of grace. And I'm here to tell you that we can approach prayer with the understanding of God like that. It'll make a difference in the way we pray. Amen? Now, let me just pause to point something out here. Where do we get this kind of understanding of God? It's right here. For the first nine verses of this psalm, the psalmist has more questions than answers. But when he gets to verse 10, he says, this is one thing I will consider, the years of the Most High, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will consider the works that God has done in the past. It was an awareness of what this word contains that transformed the prayer of the psalmist from questions to confidence. And so maybe the problem that we have with prayer is not a problem with prayer so much as a problem with the word. Maybe we really don't know who's on the other end of the line. Because if we spend time in this word, we're going to come to know that God is all-powerful and all-loving and unchanging, and that this God is the sovereign of the universe, and yet this God has chosen to invite us into his presence. That's what you find in this word. Maybe the problem with the prayer is not the problem with prayer at all, but a problem here. When we read this word, we will discover that that's what God is like. We'll also discover something else, that when we pray, God does not always answer immediately. And so if the first thing that we need to pray more powerfully is an understanding of who God is, the second thing we need in, a, in, in revivifying our prayer life is an awareness that God does not always answer immediately. Pastor Joel, as I've looked, most of the prayers of the Bible are answered only after a delay. God seems to prefer to hold off on answering. That's his norm. And it certainly was the case for the psalmist. Look at the way this, this psalm opens. I cried out to God. I called for God to help me. Day and night, the psalmist is crying out to God for God to answer. God's not answering. For our prayers to be effective, they're going to have to be prayed in perseverance. It isn't just patience. It isn't just delay. The psalmist doesn't just experience a delay in answer. The psalmist actually experiences some pushback. You know, look what he says. Verse 2. While he is waiting, there's distress coming into his life. While he is waiting, verse 2, there's people who are trying to explain to him why God isn't answering his prayers. Job's comforters. Have you met them? They've got all kinds of explanation for why God isn't answering your prayers. It's bad enough that God isn't answering my prayers. Do I have to put up with them too? Distress. 
There are questions. But maybe the most difficult thing for the psalmist in this time of waiting and delay is the sense that God is part of his problem. Where do I get that? Take a look at verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Look at verse 4. You kept my eyes from closing. Have you ever been there? Not only is God not answering your prayer, you're not even able to get a good night's sleep and escape from the agony for just a few hours. If we're going to pray like the psalmist, we've got to have the perseverance of the psalmist. And we've got to understand that God, in his wisdom, does not always answer our prayers immediately. Often, there is a delay. Why? I'm not sure. I suspect it has to do with God being too gracious to give us something before the time is right. I mean, how do you make a cake? You take all kinds of good ingredients, and you beat them all together, and you stick it in the oven. And don't you imagine if we could give the eggs and the oil and the flour an opportunity to explain their feelings at the moment? They might be a little distressed at the agitation and the heat and the delay. But listen, the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing, and God is way too gracious to give us the wrong thing. Sometimes God delays because the timing's not right. Think about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. There they are. They're, they're facing the sea. The Egyptian army is to their back. God could have taken them a different way. He could have parted the sea long before the Egyptian army get, gets there. Don't you think the Israelites at that moment were wondering, what in the world is God doing? He's part of our problem. He led us here. But the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. God's interest at that moment is not merely getting the Israelites out of Egypt. If that's all God wanted to do, he could have done it in any number of ways. God's interest, and they are not aware of it, God's interest at that moment is not only delivering them from Egypt, but delivering them from the Egyptian army. And if God does not drown the Egyptian army in the Red Sea as it's closing over them, then the Israelites are going to have to spend the rest of their time wandering in the wilderness, wondering where the Egyptian army's at. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. Some of you are wondering why God isn't answering your prayers. The right thing at the wrong time, say it, is the wrong thing. Sometimes we're not ready. Let's face it, sometimes we pray for things, and if God would answer our prayer, it wouldn't be a good thing. We're not ready for it. We're parents. We all want our children to grow up and leave the house, but, but only at a certain point. And then you don't want them to come back. I remember as a college student praying for a wife. I was desperate. I knew I was going into ministry. I knew I sh a wife would be a tremendous help for me in ministry, and I was desperate. It didn't happen. I graduated from college and started down the road single. And only after I'd been out for a while did God bring the right person into my life. He could have brought her sooner. 
but he knew I wasn't ready. See, sometimes God is too good to answer our prayers when we think we need to have them answered. And perseverance is what God gives to us in order to make the time right. So if we're going to pray the way the psalmist prayed, we're going to have to pray with a theological understanding, an awareness of who this God is and who we are in relation to this God. If we're going to pray the way the psalmist prayed, it's going to be with a perseverance, a recognition that God may make us wait, but it's always for our best. I'm just about out of time, but the last thing I want to mention to you is, is it's kind of embarrassing. And maybe I could just leave it off, but, but in honesty, it's something that many of us, including me, struggle with. If we're going to pray like the psalmist, if we're going to have the kind of prayer that's powerful and effective, then it needs to be the kind of prayer, listen, that's prayed with the awareness that God is listening and that God will respond to what we ask. I told you it was obvious. I mean, isn't that what all of us think about when we think about prayer? We're talking to God. But am I the only one in the room who will find himself talking to God, but I've lost my focus that God is listening? Am I the only one in the room that prays these prayers faithfully, but I've somehow forgotten that God wants to respond to my prayers and do something in response to them? Am I the only one in the room? Can I get a witness? It's not, listen, it's not a lack of faith. It's not that I say, I don't believe God's listening. I don't believe God will answer my prayer. It's not a lack of faith. It's a lack of focus. I just let my mind wander, and I'm saying all kinds of beautiful things. I've just forgotten there's somebody on the other end of the line that's listening to me. And that that person on the other end of the line has, for whatever reason, decided that he will listen to me and respond to my prayers. And listen, if I don't have that consciousness, if I am not focused on the fact that God is actually listening to me when I talk to him and will actually do something in response to what I say, no wonder my prayers can be insipid. No wonder we don't from time to time look up at the ceiling and wonder if our prayers have not gone any further than that. No wonder. No wonder we're not people committed to the life of prayer. We've got to believe like the psalmist believed that God is actually listening and wants to respond. Prayer changes things. You say that with me? Prayer changes things. Say this with me. My prayer changes things. Say that with me. My prayer changes things. I think that's where the rubber hits the road. If we can get a grip, if we can be gripped with the awareness that you and me have access to the throne room of heaven and that God is not only listening but he will somehow shape the destiny of this world based on what we ask him. I believe that will change the way we pray. You say, Steve, how's that supposed to work? How's God actually listening? I, do you have testimony meetings here? We had testimony meetings when I was growing up, Sunday night services. And I'll never forget this testimony meeting. I can still picture it in my head. 
I was sitting in the middle of the church where I always sat, and a guy from the way in the back, he'd never come before, he never saw him again. He got up during testimony time, he started talking. Now, right away, I knew this was going to be exciting because no one ever moved in our testimony services. But he was walking, and he was walking toward the front, and I didn't know what he was going to do. He was going to punch the pastor or what he was going to do. But the other electric thing was, he was he's, as he's walking along, he's getting his wallet out. He was getting a dollar. I guess he thought he had to pay for this privilege. But anyway, he's walking toward the front, and he was saying something that went like this. God doesn't hear everybody praying. I can't think how many computers he'd have to have to hear everybody praying. And he put his dollar in the offering plate and never came back again. I don't know how this works. I don't know how God hears everybody praying around the world. And I certainly don't understand how a sovereign, omnipotent God somehow factors my requests into his plan. I don't understand that. Here's what I know. Here's what I'm told. Pray without ceasing. Here's what I'm told. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's what I know. Here's what I know, Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about anything, but instead by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what I know. I don't know how it works. I don't know how it works. I just know that we're given the opportunity to come to God and make our requests known to him. And he listens and responds. That's what I know. And my call to us this morning is to be a people of prayer. To be a people of prayer. To be a people who pray in faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Those who come to him must believe that he exists. So he rewards those who diligently seek him. But, but how else but with prayer? Can you pray to a God to solve your problem when it appears that God is only making your problem worse? How else but with faith? How else but with faith can you follow a God whose footprints, verse 19, are invisible? That's where some of you are. That's where some of us are. We're trying to follow a God whose footprints are invisible. And you only do that by praying with faith. A message like this hits us in different ways. There are some of you in this room who are prayer warriors. When you dial up, God picks up right away. Thank you. Your prayers make a difference. My only word to you is just to remember the caution that Jesus gave. When you pray, go into your room. I don't mean that literally. I just mean your besetting sin, your Achilles heel, you prayer warriors, is pride. Some of you don't pray because you don't have the self-discipline to make the time to do it. For some of you, your prayers are oxygen-starved. They are so weak and deluded because you've not fed yourself with the Word of God. What you need for your prayers is more Word. Some of us struggle with prayer because we've prayed for so long and nothing's happened. And what we need is more perseverance. Some of you have not been praying because you weren't aware this was an opportunity you had. We're going to close this service with the song, Lord, I Need You. 
And I'm going to ask as we stand and as this song is sung, that we claim from God whatever it is we need to make us people of prayer.